This is The Guardian. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is the Full Story Summer Series. I'm here with Alison Chan, one of our producers on Full Story. Hey, Alison. Hi, Laura. I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. What do you think about Jane Austen? I used to love Jane Austen. Like a lot of teenagers and girls in their early 20s, I read her books obsessively. I had hardcover copies. I had a particular place in my heart for the BBC six-part miniseries. I've watched it. I don't know how many times. (laughs) But yeah, was a big fan. How about you? So similar to you, BBC Pride and Prejudice, Colin Firth was very much like my gateway into Jane Austen. So I wouldn't describe myself as a huge fan, but I do love love stories. And then I actually started thinking about Austen again recently when The Guardian published a piece by journalist and writer Sarah Malik, uh, which was about Jane Austen, and actually got Sarah to record some of her essay for us. These stories told me it wasn't beyond hope to dream of romance and a happy ending within a catty hierarchical society filled with subtle double meanings. When an auntie said cryptically, you are looking so healthy, mashallah, what she really meant was, you've gained some weight. What's the kind of central thesis of that essay? So this is an excerpt called Is Jane Austen Pakistani, (laughs) which is taken from Sarah's memoir, which is called Desi Girl. And I think what is really funny about this piece is that she talks about her experience growing up in the Pakistani diaspora in Sydney during the 90s. And she draws similarities to that and the 19th century world of Jane Austen and her characters in Great Britain. Jane Austen was basically Pakistani, I determined. And the balls she described were basically Dalits. I mean, some of Austen's characters even had cousin marriages. She understood the dilemma of a young woman like myself, dreaming of another world, but having to live within the practical realities of the one she was born into. What interested you in this take from Sarah that Jane Austen is... Pakistani, or at least her world has similarities to Sarah's world. I was drawn to the idea that Sarah felt that she could see herself in the world of someone who didn't actually look like her. I wanted to know, like, what is it about Austen that makes her so appealing and adaptable to different audiences? Because it seems to me like quite a uniquely, like there aren't many writers who are actually able to continue to have that kind of contemporary relevance Mm. today. The lusty remakes go on. They keep on going on. And I think that's really remarkable for anyone, especially a woman who wrote these stories 200 years ago. I needed to get married, pronto, before I expired like bad mayonnaise at 27, like poor Anne Elliot, a spinster way past her debutante use-by date. We went to Dawits every weekend at parks, wedding banquet halls, function centres and other people's houses. Here we wore long glittering shalwar and sat around and ate and did not do much else until we had to clean up. Young women were admired at these events by eagle-eyed aunties, looking on behalf of desultory young men who turned up for food before driving away to play pool and poker, a kind of modern-day hunting party. Coming up, 
Austin Con, a musical, and why Jane Austen still resonates with so many people today. Sarah, can you tell me how did your love for Jane Austen novels begin? I fell in love with Jane Austen as a teenager and you know, she was able to depict so beautifully, you know, the confusions and dilemmas of these women that I felt like I could relate to. As a young, dreamy teenager from a kind of working class Pakistani background, I, yeah, strangely related to her world of Victorian England and her heroines, um, not just because they came from a conservative world, but just I felt like she gave her heroines just so much um, emotional depth and complexity and she didn't patronise or condescend to them. And so that's something that I think that appealed to me a lot. Jane Austen was a white woman writing 200 years ago. Yes. Like, what do you think it says about her that teenage Sarah in suburban Sydney, what does it say about Austen that you felt a connection with her stories and her characters? She's a great writer. You know, she's a great writer. She understands the human heart and she understands women and she is an observer. And I think it's um, really interesting you grow up with a love of a certain kind of literature and and later on, you know, when I did sit down to write my book, I could kind of view that experience from a post-colonial lens and you kind of look at, oh, like, who would I be in relation to that world? And, you know, where would I fit in as a character in that world? And, and how would I exist in that time? Because, you know, obviously Victorian England, it was a colonial era, you know. This was a world that colonised my ancestors. And so I also kind of think a lot about, you know, my inheritance and in terms of a, my love of English literature and, and wonder, you know, how that sits in with that legacy. I want to delve further into the experience of being a woman of colour who thinks passionately about what Jane Austen means today and what Austen had to say about race and colonialism. I'm from an immigrant family and both my parents really believe in education. Um, My dad particularly, uh, he grew up in Sri Lanka but always believed that English literature was sort of the pinnacle of, I guess, world literature. Meet Sharmini Kumar. She's thought about Austen in a big way, in many ways, actually. Five years ago, Sharmini's theatre and production company started the annual Austen Con in Melbourne, a one-day event that celebrates all things Jane Austen. There's a runway for people who've dressed up in Regency-inspired clothes. There are dancing lessons, embroidery lessons, and panels where they talk about Austen in imaginative and surprising ways. Last year, they had a session about the mental health of Austen's characters and a presentation from the creators of a Jane Austen role-playing game. So AustenCon is very much a gathering of Austen fans. I love her prose. I love the way that she describes things with so much humour. She writes such human characters. She writes characters that are relatable. She writes characters that we have met before in our day-to-day life. You can just be like, well, that is clearly a... Mr. Darcy type of person. We all know somebody who is a little bit aloof, who holds themselves back a little bit from lots of social interactions, who some people will think is a little bit um, stuck up or up themselves. But when you get to know them, they're actually very generous and very caring. 
I think we all know, again, the Mrs. Bennett character is a motherly figure who is very genuinely caring, but is also extremely anxious and extremely worried and perhaps a little bit over-involved in um, people's lives. You know, Emma as well is the sort of person who um, is very rich, very privileged, and because of that feels that she has the right to give other people advice all the time. And I think we know those people too, you know. So that's what I mean when I say those characters characters are really relatable. You are a fan? I am a fan. You've also previously described Austin as a problematic fave. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? I think there's a few reasons why I find I I describe Jane Austen as a problematic fave. Definitely a fave and definitely um, books that I return to and adaptations that I return to over and over and over again. Um, I think there are lots of different elements that give me a little bit of pause when I think about them. One of them is to do with the way that Austen has been used through time. Um, She was promoted through the British Empire as this sort of model of Englishness and a model to aspire to of decorum and civilization, quote unquote. Um, And I think the way that she has been used to kind of browbeat people into better behaviour um, is something that I find a little bit problematic. And, th- and there are ways in which that continues today that Austen is held up as a model of virtue and, and particularly around um, chastity and other kind of ideas that people might be looking for. I think there are some problems also in the way that her perspective is is quite narrow and she was very specific about sticking to a perspective that she knew and understood. But that is a perspective that is, you know, we would say basically white middle class. Um, And she doesn't often look much beyond that sphere. Um, Again, I think that's problematic more in the way that we receive that in terms of how we valorise that and, and can sometimes be resistant to application outside of that very narrow sphere. So she wrote six published novels, which were published between 1811 and 1818. So we're talking early 19th century. What did Austen and her readers understand about British colonialism at the time? Um, So British colonialism at the time, there was uh, British colonialism is obviously a very big thing um, and very wide. So there's a few different aspects of that. One of them would be, for example, um, the transatlantic slave trade. So the transatlantic slave trade was the trade in people that would be taken from predominantly West Africa um, to the Americas to to be slaves. The trade itself was technically abolished in 1807. Um, So, you know, at the time of Austen's works being published, that's a relatively recent thing. And there's still ongoing debate in England about the practicalities and the legalities and the morality of abolishing slavery itself, which wasn't going to happen for another couple of decades. Um, So things like uh, sugar boycotts were used as part of the anti-slavery campaign in the early 19th century where people would give up having sugar in their tea or sugar in food um, in order to protest and try and and take money away from the sugar producers, which were largely on plantations in the West Indies that would use slave labour in production of sugar. 
Um, another big aspect of British colonialism at that time was their involvement in India. So with the British East India Company, that was sort of in the process of being something that was largely independent and the company could basically do whatever it liked in India under the guise of being a trading organisation that had basically subjugated large sections of the Indian population in order to further its trade in particularly textiles. Um, around about the time of Jane Austen's life, people were starting to realise that there were horrific kinds of, I guess we'd call them atrocities, um, happening in India in the name of the British East India Company. And the British government was starting to take notice and to um, appoint governors um, in a much more political and less uh, specifically trade-based sense. Um, and so there's a sense that they have a responsibility to India. There's no sense necessarily that they should just leave um, and there's no sense that colonialism necessarily is something that's that's bad in and of itself. But there certainly is a sense that if we're going to be in India, then we have to do it quote unquote well. But there wasn't really a sense that going there and sort of taking over was necessarily an immoral kind of thing to do. Reflecting on what you're saying, it sounds like the British colonisation of India was very much a live and present issue for Jane Austen's readers at the time. What do we then understand or know about how they thought about race at the time? Race in this period and the way that people understand race is quite complicated. So we know that there were people of colour in England at the time, but it's not the numbers of, of those people are not necessarily counted well in censuses and other official data just because it wasn't something that people would always record as a pertinent fact about somebody. But we know that there were people of African descent who lived in England. We know that people through Britain's trade relationships would come over on ships from either India or China or other places and lived there. We know that there were people of mixed race in relatively high positions in society, but the sort of extent of that is not fully known, partly, as I said, because people didn't always capture that data in any official way. So we know that there was definitely racism. People treated mixed race people or people of different backgrounds with with a certain degree of kind of contempt or curiosity and but not certainly not on equal kinds of terms looking at the writings of Jane Austen how does she talk about race in her work well Jane Austen doesn't talk directly about race very much in her work the thing though is that she doesn't actually mention race in terms of her characters, but they have always been assumed to be white. And that is an assumption that perhaps reflects as much about us as her readers and interpreters as it does about herself. For example, one of her heroines, Marianne Dashwood, again from Sense and Sensibility, she is referred to as having brown skin. Whether Austen is trying to say that means she spends a lot of time outdoors without her bonnet on and therefore is tanned, um, is, you know, one question, or is she trying to say uh, that there's some question about her parentage or what does that actually mean is not, is what's not clear from, from the novel, but she's always been interpreted as white. 
So I think there's these kind of little hints that we get that Austen did have an idea of Britain and Englishness that wasn't entirely about whiteness. Mm. This, for me personally, is really surprising. You've described how we can't assume that her characters were all white. And before you were talking about how the society and the world in which she was writing in Britain also wasn't exclusively white either. What do you think the knowledge and understanding of that, how does that, for you as a reader, shape the way that you read her work? I think it just opens up possibilities to think about. You know, Pride and Prejudice, her most famous novel, the romantic hero, Mr Darcy, with £10,000 a year. Um, He lives on this grand estate, and we know that many of the estates of the time were funded in part by owning shares in or people who had directly worked with the British East India Company. What if Mr Darcy's fortune comes from the British East India Company? What does that, does that change how we see him? Um, it could mean anything, it could mean nothing. It could mean, can mean whatever we want it to mean or how, whatever we make it mean. Um, but I think just asking the question is worthwhile, you know? Um, Mansfield Park is a book where the father of the family spends a lot of time away in the West Indies looking after quote-unquote business. And so we have to assume that probably part of that business involved overseeing slaves on a plantation there. So that casts these romantic heroes in a different light, I think, and it makes us think again and a little bit more deeply about the way that we project onto these people a kind of romanticism and a kind of idealism that I don't think Austen actually necessarily wanted us to have. Next, Shamini Kumar on turning Jane Austen's novels into theatre. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here with a quick note about The Guardian. As you're probably aware, Guardian Australia's journalism is editorially independent, meaning we set our own agenda. We don't have a billionaire owner, nor do we answer to shareholders, so we're free from commercial bias. And this independence matters because it means we're able to challenge the powerful and hold them to account. Unlike many news organisations, we have not put up a paywall. We chose a model that means our reporting is open to everyone and funded by our readers who can afford to pay. Every contribution, whether big or small, counts. If you're able to contribute and have a minute, head to theguardian.com forward slash support full story. We've also linked to this on the full story page. Thanks. Sharmini and her theatre company, 24 Carat Productions, have done a number of adaptations of Austen's work for the stage. Last year, her work included writing and directing Sense and Sensibility, the musical. This estate was the home of the late John Dashwood. You've obviously thought a lot about how to read and interpret Austen today. You did a musical theatre adaptation of Sense and Sensibility last year. Tell me, 
what were the things that you were interested in in thinking about adapting this work for a musical theatre audience in 2022? There were a number of things I wanted to do with it, but one of the things that I did want to do was to take seriously the idea that one of the romantic heroes, because it's about a pair of sisters and they both end up, spoiler alert, finding romance at the end of the novel, um, that Colonel Brandon had been in in India and part of the British East India Company or working alongside the British East India Company. And what that means for him as a character, what that might mean for his relationship with this younger idealistic woman. My orders in India were to protect the interests of the British East India Company, including its export of textiles. We kind of started to explore some of the trauma of him having been a soldier to start with, but then also the difficulty that that causes, obviously, for um, the people of India. Um, And so he introduced this character of a merchant who he had befriended but who has quite mixed feelings about their friendship but also, obviously, British involvement in India. Your riches, your cloth, your spices, your tea... It wasn't a sort of major plot point or anything that we changed, but it was a character point about this person in terms of how he relates to the world, but also how he relates to the the love interest in that. As somebody who's more idealistic, does she kind of reject him because of his soldierly background? I mean, we sort of assume in lots of Austen that soldiers are seen as dashing romantics, um, but might not necessarily always be the case, I think. So just gave us the opportunity a little bit to explore where would these characters have stood on the question of sugar boycotts? What would their reaction have been to a character who was Indian, you know, attending dinner parties with them? We just introduced this element that gives us a bit more depth to the world and to these characters and their relationships. You yourself have spent a lot of time writing and directing theatre adaptations of Austen's work. Why do you believe so strongly in the power of an adaptation and the value of an adaptation? I think that anybody should be able to approach the text and see themselves in it, Um, whether that's people of different races, different genders, sexuality, ability. Everybody should have the opportunity to reappropriate or re-engage with the text and make it their own. I think that when we cast for stage, we don't have to always be 100% quote-unquote realistic in, in a way that maybe a movie has to, that it doesn't matter if a group of five sisters don't look like they could be sisters or, you know, if somebody's got a tattoo that they wouldn't have had in, in that time. I don't think that sort of stuff matters as much on stage as it does in other mediums. And I think that immediacy of being able to see a physical embodied person taking on these roles and these perspectives and these romances and these relationships can be really powerful. In a lot of her work, she really focuses in on personal and personal relationships. Would you describe her work as political? Well, I mean, like the obvious answer to that is that the personal is political. And I think that's the main way in which it is political because it's because it's so personal. The interesting thing about Austen is that she that she's actually not overtly political. She draws relationships as they are, which gives us an opportunity to say, well, this is how we want 
to frame our society or no, this is not how we want to frame our society. And I think in the end, that is her political contribution. So total fantasy scene. In the spirit of an Australian summer, if you took a road trip with four characters from Jane Austen's novels, who would you have in your car and why? All of Austen's characters have the capacity to be incredibly annoying, but I would take Eleanor Dashwood. She is one of the heroines from Sense and Sensibility. She's the sense part of the Sense and Sensibility. She would make sure your phone was always charged, that everybody had, like, a backup battery for your phone and the right cord. She would make sure that snacks were packed and that were, like, individually labelled with if you, if you had a food allergy. She would be the one that makes sure that, you know, you had something for you as well. So I would I would definitely take Eleanor Dashwood. Uh, I think I would also take Lizzie Bennet. Uh, she is the main female character from Pride and Prejudice, and uh, she can be she's the sort of person who can sometimes jump to conclusions. She can be a little bit judgy sometimes, but she's very funny. She's uh, not the sort of person who's easily uh, defeated by bad run of traffic or um, you know the the place that you wanted to go to is closed. She would find an alternative. She would find a solution and she would crack a joke about it. So she's coming too. I think I would also... Fanny Price is the heroine of Mansfield Park um, and she is the poor cousin that everybody takes pity on. She's a little bit downtrodden. Look, I don't think she'd be the most fun to hang out with, but I feel sorry for her. She deserves a holiday um, and she, she would be the sort of person that if there was anything she could do, you would just have to ask her and she would go and do it, right? So if you cannot be bothered getting out of the car at the gas station to fill up, you'd be like, Fanny, do you mind? You're sitting right next to like where the um, tank is. Um, we'll, we'll just wait here for you. Would you? Yeah, and she would totally do that. So that's not very nice of me, but I would also take her. And finally, um, I would take Mr. Darcy. Um, that is the romantic hero of Pride and Prejudice. And he has 10,000 a year and he's paying for everything. You are set. <laughs> I'm, we're totally set. That is the right mixture of fun, but also fail-proof. Yeah, like, I like this kind of middle lane that you've uh, you. negotiated <laughs> and the room that you've opened for compromises as well. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks to Shalmini and Sarah for their time. We've linked to Sarah's essay on Jane Austen on the Full Story website, and you should go and check that out. This episode was produced by Alison Chan. The supervising producer was Ellen Leebeater. Sound design and mixing by Camilla Hannon. Production assistance from Karishma Luthria. The executive producer on this episode was Gabrielle Jackson. Okay, thanks for listening.